Well, let's remain standing one minute longer and join me in the book of Romans, chapter 16. Like I said, we are going to change a little bit of the order of our service this morning, beginning with the scripture and an opening song, and and then we'll have a 90-minute sermon. (laughs) No, we're we're going to respond to the teaching at the end of the service with more singing. And so for now, let's, um, let's read together these closing words, again from Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Again, Father, we come to you now, offering... Uh, not our voices in song, but offering our minds in study. We hold them up to you, and we ask that you would fill them, transform them, renew them, and that the knowledge that you teach us would trickle down, if you will, into our hearts and mold and shape who we are at the core of our being such that we would better reflect the image of our Savior for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus and his name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This week, we might come to the dramatic conclusion of the book of Romans. We'll see in like 45 minutes, right? Week two, if you will, of the conclusion to this exciting book. Week three of our little mini-series about Paul's heart. The opening 16 verses, we see Paul's heart for people. 17 through 23, we see Paul's heart for protection there with that, that warning. And then finally, in these closing verses, we see Paul's heart for praise. So that's where we are. If you're a note taker, this is Paul's heart for praise, part two, right? Part two. Now we noted that, of course, what we just read together last week, we observed, is called a doxology. It's a medieval Latin term. It's a conjunction, doxa and ologia. Doxa meaning glory or praise. Ologia meaning a word or an expression, And so you put them together and you have a word of praise or an expression of praise. There are, in the New Testament, 28 benedictions and doxologies. 
The difference between a benediction and a doxology is the one to whom the word is directed. Or you might just simply say the audience. A benediction has the audience of the people of God. A doxology has as the audience God himself. Let's look at a couple of benedictions so that we make sure we understand this clearly. We speak this over one another every week. From number six, the Lord bless you and keep you, right? Well, the context, of course, is the Lord's blessing, but who is the audience? One another. The Lord bless you, right? Colossians 3. We could read the whole of Colossians 3. It's practically a benediction in and of itself, but famously from verses 16 and 17, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? Let the word dwell in you richly. See, the audience is the people of God. Philippians 4, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These are benedictions spoken over and by the people of God. Beautiful, encouraging, inspiring, right? But the audience is you. Doxology is a word or expression of praise where the audience is God. Again, I'm a Baptist preacher, three examples. Ephesians 3, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We read this last week, right? According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him. Not to you, you see? 1 Timothy 1.17, to the king of ages, immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. First Timothy 6. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. See the difference? Both are necessary. Both happen, if you will, in corporate worship, but they are not the same. Does, does your heart soar a little with me as I read those? As I was preparing <clears throat> and and just reading all 28 of these from the context of Scripture, I, I wanted to read all of them with you. And of course, for the sake of time, I had to pick a few, but I, I read them and I was thinking about you and thinking about this opening introduction and, and how to best you know, capture the essence of doxology for us 
as we move into the time of study and I just found myself worshiping the Lord in my office. My heart was soaring as I read these expressions of praise. It reminded me of the way the disciples spoke of their time walking on the road to Emmaus with the resurrected Jesus. And the King James was not our heart burning in us as he spoke to us on the way. The Phillips paraphrase says, weren't our hearts glowing while he was with us on the road and when he made the scriptures plain to us. Such is the experience that is often present when we are extolling the virtue of God in song or in fellowship, in teaching or in study. These are often the accompanying feelings when we are exposed to God's truth or when we are reminded of his goodness, his grace, his attributes, right? And yet we must not turn personal or corporate worship into an attempt to replicate those feelings. We must be careful not to go chasing a sensation. Instead, let us commit to setting our affections on the one who made all and gave all to rescue doomed sinners from his wrath which we deserve. That's our commitment. To set our affections on him, not to stir in ourselves a feeling. And so it is by this that we are again reminded that all praise, all worship is a response to what God has already done. God acted first and we respond. And so once again we note that with this closing expression of praise, Paul is responding to the good news found in his own letter. And in doing so, Paul shows us one final example, one more thing to imitate. And he also teaches us how. We want to have Paul's heart for praise. And so we noted last week, number one, worship is offered to him who is able. Now to him who is able to strengthen you. He is able. And we read all those examples last week of what God is able to do in the scriptures. He's able to keep you and forgive you and preserve you, right? He's able. He's able to strengthen you, to establish you. We worship the God who is able We don't worship the pursuit of a sensation. We worship the God who is able, right? He's able to do many things, and of course, in this context, he is able to strengthen you or establish you. That is to say, firmly root you. We noted then next next last week that worship is centered around the gospel, number two. Worship is centered around the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about the the good news. What's the good news? The good news is we are dead in our trespasses and sins, slaves to our sin, following the course of the power of this world, walking in lockstep like the German army 
in the era of the Nazi regime, walking in lockstep, following the course of the prince of the power of darkness. So that's bad news, preacher. <laughs> that's it. The good news starts there. And the book of Romans starts there. We are in desperate need to be rescued from our willful participation in the sin and evil that ensnares us and dooms us. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive together with Christ. And so Romans continues, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of that sin is death. But if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved out of that walking in lockstep with the prince of darkness. Saved out of your slavery to sin that dooms you. Saved out of the consequences of sin. Saved out of the power of sin over you. And eventually, in glory, you will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. And if you take Ezekiel and the implications of the rest of the text of Scripture literally, which I do, we will be saved from even the knowledge of our own shame in heaven. How great is that? And so Paul centers worship and he compels the church to come with him as he worships God centered around the gospel. He is able to strengthen you according to my gospel, according to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Funny, there's, there's no like smoke machine mentioned here, just the preaching of Jesus Christ. I, strange. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the eternal command of God to bring about the obedience of faith. And so the gospel is this. It is the good news. It is mysterious. And it brings about a particular result. Obedience. And so we discussed that last week, this centrality of the gospel. Paul calls it my gospel. And when we know Christ, and when we know the gospel, it is owned, it is lived, it is internalized so that it can be shared, verbally and non-verbally. The gospel is also a mystery now revealed. The mystery Paul speaks of here is that of the Gentiles being grafted into God's chosen people of Israel. Through Israel came Jesus the Messiah, and by his accomplishments, all the people of the world can be forgiven of their sin and be at peace with God, no matter your nationality or heritage or whatnot. It's a mystery that this offer was opened up to all the people of the world. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
fellow members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, I was asked after the service last week, having spoken to this mystery, I was asked about other mysteries referred to in the Bible and how it is that we know that this is the particular mystery to which Paul is referring in Romans 16. How do we know the mystery Paul's talking about here is that reference to the non-Jewish inclusion in the people and the promises of God? And it's a good question, uh, and the answer is context. Context. These closing three verses are a summary of the entire book itself. Paul emphasizes in these closing words of praise the central themes of Romans. That is, the gospel, the mystery of the unity of Jew and Gentile, and then obedience, beginning in chapter 12 and running through chapter 15. It's almost like he, in the order of the letter, he speaks to the gospel, the mystery, obedience. And if you look, basically it's like chapters like 1 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 15. The gospel, the mystery, obedience. And that's the order that he puts it in right here. Let's read it again. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, chapters 1 through 8, According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, that's 9 through 11. It's now been disclosed through the prophetic writings as being made known to the nations according to the command to bring about the obedience of faith, chapters 12 through 15. Now, for a little bit of persuasion to that effect, turn with me to the end of chapter 8, Romans 8, the end. How does chapter 8 end? With these words, beginning in verse 38. For I am sure that neither life nor, excuse me, death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's like an explosion of worship. It's a benediction, kind of like the closing to a particular topic. And then in chapter nine, he immediately speaks to something else. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race belong to the flesh, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
And then he spends the next three chapters talking about the significance of the Jewish people, the role that they played in the unearthing of the gospel, and chapters 10 and 11, the inclusion of the Gentile people. At the end of chapter 11, verse 36, here it comes again, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. A doxology, after talking about the mystery of the Gentile inclusion. And then chapter 12 begins this way, famously, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your spiritual worship, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And for the next four chapters, he talks about obedience. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, the obedience of faith referenced right here in his closing doxology. So do you see? Do you see the whole letter in the closing words? I'm going home. I'm just going to go home because no one sees it. All right? Did, did, I, did I work this week? I think I worked on this sermon this week for your sake. Do, do you see the whole letter in the closing words? Thank you. Good. The gospel, the mystery. Now, there are other mysteries that the biblical authors refer to. There is the mystery of the incarnation. We read about this. We read these words every Christmas. For unto us a child is born. Many of you can probably recite it from there, right? To us a son is given, and the what will be on his shoulder? The government, and his name shall be called Yeah, you sort of trailed out there at the end, but yeah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We read them at Christmas time, but listen to what it says. For unto us a child is born, and his name will be mighty God. The mystery of the incarnation. A child is born who is God. And the Pharisees and the chief priests could not get past this moment with Jesus. Jesus said, These scriptures are being fulfilled today in your hearing. And they were like, "Uh, that's blaspheme, let's kill him. Uh, Maybe it's coming true, guys. A child will be born who is called mighty God. The mystery of the incarnation, it still boggles the mind. You wanna do a quick Bible drill? You know Bible drill where you gotta flip to the page? I'd love for you to read these with me and not just listen to me. Mark 4, verse 10. Friends, I promise there's a point to all of this. We're not doing this just for kicks. Mark 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, that being Jesus, of course, those around him with the 12 asked him about 
the parables. And he said to them, verse 11, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, quoting Isaiah, they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Eyes closed, hear but not, under, not, not act, right? Listen but not understand, or else their eyes be opened and they turn and be forgiven. What would happen if the chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in Jesus' day had their eyes opened to the revelation of the truth of who Jesus is? The crucifixion doesn't happen, right? And if the crucifixion doesn't happen, we're all doomed. So there is the mystery of Jesus' teaching in the parables. The mystery of the secrets of the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 3.16. You guys having fun yet? I am. All right, good. This is the mystery of the coming of Jesus. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. What's the mystery of godliness? The answer comes next. He. Who is he? He is Jesus. The mystery of godliness is he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery of the first coming of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4. It's to the left. Here is the mystery of the second coming of the Lord. First his first coming in 1 Timothy 3.16. Now the second coming, 1 Thessalonians 4. Tom knows these verses well. Verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. They're not dead, they're asleep. Why? Because everyone will be resurrected. So everyone is just asleep. You die in your sins or you die in Christ, you will be resurrected on the last day, either to eternal glory or eternal judgment. So you're just asleep. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep, But the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with 
the Lord. Now, is that just two plus two equals four? Or is that kind of mysterious? Yeah. The mystery of his second coming. Let's do some more. Romans 11, verse 25. This is referred to as the mystery of Israel's future restoration and the mystery of the coming of a new heaven and a new earth. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Seems as though there is some non-Jewish believer who is as yet not redeemed, and when he utters that prayer of belief and submission that Paul outlines in Romans 10, 9, it seems that that moment, at least that life, will usher in the opening of the eyes of the rest of the people of Israel, perhaps by the coming of the Lord that we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. And verse 26, in this way all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. He'll be cleansed. And this, verse 27, will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So is there, there is a, a mystery of the future restoration of Israel. 1 Corinthians 15. At least they're all close to each other, right? Verse 51, it's a big chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Yeah. Now again, I ask you friends, is that just two plus two equals four? No, that's kind of bonkers, right? I mean, how many questions have I gotten in my lifetime? So what are our glorified bodies going to be like exactly? Because I got like this elbow thing, you know what I mean? I've had a bad foot from the day I was born. I'm not going to have a bad foot in heaven, right? Will I look like this because I'd like to be about 10, maybe 20% more handsome, you know? I don't know, friends. It's a mystery. But it's a, it's a mystery that we will have bodies like Jesus, imperishable, 
perhaps even the way Jesus appeared inside of a locked room where the doors and windows were closed. He was navigating between the realms of the spiritual and the physical effortlessly. Perhaps our glorified bodies will be like that too. Not sure it's a mystery. Yeah. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to back up and run up to this one, beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Are you worshiping yet? Are you worshiping yet, church? In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making, look, known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth there is the mystery of his will his purposes why why has my grown child rejected the faith in which they were raised Why are they wayward? Why are they hurting themselves? Why are they hurting their family? Why are they not listening to me? Why is their heart not soft? I don't know. The will of God to accomplish his purpose is a mystery. Pray and wait. Romans chapter 11, last one. The mystery of God's will. Who can know the mind of God? Isn't that what Job said? Isn't that what Isaiah said? Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Your ways are higher than my ways. Isn't that what the preacher said in Ecclesiastes? Here it is again in Romans 11 at the end. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to God that he might be repaid? I worshiped you. I obeyed you. I gave money to your church. I gave a thousand camels to your temple. You owe me. But the Spirit says, who has given to the Lord a gift that he might be repaid? Could we? Do we have anything worthy of holding God's feet to the fire for repayment? No, right? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. The mystery of God's mind 
the mystery of his wisdom. It doesn't compel the smartest man in the first century, Paul the Apostle. It doesn't compel him to figure God out or put God into his doctrinal box. It causes him to explode in worship. See, friends, that's worship. What we just did, that's worship. It's offered to him who is able. It's centered on the gospel, which speaks of this great, number two. It's been up, two should have been up there for like 20 minutes now, just by the way. Centered on the gospel. It's revolving around the mysterious ways of God, his plans, his mind, his wisdom. And then finally, Paul emphasizes the results back to Chapter 16, at the end, the last bit of verse 26, to bring about the obedience of faith. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of our worship, perhaps you might even say true worship is obedience. But that was the plan all along. The faith that saves is a faith that compels and enables obedience. He is able to strengthen you. To do what? Bring about the obedience of faith. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, down to the end, to bring about the obedience of faith. The faith that saves is a faith that compels and enables obedience. The results of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, the mystery unveiled is obedience. If the Spirit of God dwells in you truly, you can be made strong unto obedience. You don't have to turn there, but this is the echo of Romans chapter 1. Let me read to you the beginning of his letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, mysteriously, right? Concerning his son, who was descended from David, somehow the son of God is descended from a man who was born, according to the flesh, that is. Oh, okay. That makes it clear. Not, right? And verse 4 was declared to be the Son of God. How is he declared to be the Son of God? Well, in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Oh, the resurrection proves his deity, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received like a gift grace and the apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith. Why? For the sake of his name among the nations. Instead of sacrificial obedience to God's moral parameters for life, the popular mindset of the day is victimhood and blame shifting. But the Bible tells us the results of the gospel are obedience. 
We live, though, in a time and in a culture where your brokenness, your sinfulness, your patterns and habits of sin are because you are a victim. You are a victim of the system, the environment, of your parents and your gnarly upbringing. And along with that comes the natural blame shifting. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me. It was the snake. Right? That's the woman. I was doing her. That was the acting. The gospel is good news unto obedience. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, meaning your obedience is an element of the means through which God rescues other sinners from hell and eternal damnation. The obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Is there anything that has brought more shame on the name of Christ than public figures like the type I am who are caught in lifestyles of rampant disobedience. Is there anything? I can't think of it. So Paul says, for the sake of preserving the reputation of your Savior among all who are watching across the globe, obey. Genuine faith is faith that breeds and enables obedience. It is not good news. It is not the gospel unto powerlessness, failure, and disobedience. It is good news that faith in Christ breeds and obedience to his commands, listen, that our unredeemed selves could never otherwise accomplish. Now you might say, I get it. But the Bible asks me to do some hard things about controlling my mind, controlling my speech. I find it challenging. I often don't even try. So let me offer this to you by way of application. If we are struggling to obey, struggling to resist temptation to sin in the mind carried out in the actions of the flesh, that is our hands, our mouths, our eyes, etc., then I suggest to you it is not because he is unable to strengthen you, for the task. No, to him who is able be glory. Rather, you and I, when we are struggling to obey, are doing one or all three of the following. Number one, perhaps we are feeding the monster, as I call it. Feeding the monster. When you feed your selfish and sinful cravings and desires, you only make the monster stronger. And then no wonder he is so hard to resist. Next time, you've been feeding him. And feeding him well. Right? Every reasonable and knowledgeable uh, program that brings people out of a lifestyle of addiction knows that you cannot wean off. You have to starve it. You can't go into a moderate level of entertaining this craving and this addiction. You gotta cut it off. You gotta starve it. You gotta reset. You gotta reset completely. 
And so Paul writes in Romans 13, in that section on obedience, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Starve the monster. Perhaps the reason why your monster is so hard to resist is because you've been feeding him a solid and steady diet. You gotta starve him. Secondly, perhaps we're prioritizing craving over duty. Prioritizing craving over duty. Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Craving. If then, Paul writes in Colossians, you have been raised with Christ. So he's talking to Christians. If you're genuinely a Christian, obey this command, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It may very well be, friends, we have to be honest enough with ourselves to say, I enjoy my craving more than my duty. I enjoy giving in to the craving of my sinful flesh more than I enjoy the delight of my God and my Savior. That might be an honest point of confession that needs to be part of your prayer life right now, today, tonight, tomorrow morning. If we're struggling to obey, it might just very well be that we enjoy our craving more than our duty. We are prioritizing craving over duty. And what is the solution? It's set your mind on the things that are above. Colin Smith says, may his frown be our greatest dread and his smile our greatest delight. So we might be feeding the monster, that's why it's so hard to obey. We might be prioritizing craving over duty. And third, we might just simply be unwilling to do what's necessary. Unwilling to do what's necessary. What do you mean? Jesus said in Matthew, 20, Matthew 5, 29 and 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. Better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What's he saying? He's saying do what's necessary. Do what's necessary. I can't get over this. Well, stop going there. Stop driving to that place. Get rid of the tablet, the device, the smartphone. Stop listening to the gossip. Stop. Do what's necessary. And then suddenly we begin to do what's necessary and it becomes easier to starve the monster and it becomes easier to have our minds set on the things that are above and then the failure that once was our Christian life seems a mile away. Perhaps we're just unwilling to do what's necessary because it would be inconvenient. Is it, friends? What's more inconvenient? Shaming the name of your Savior? Receiving the frown of God? Perhaps even bringing into question the genuineness of your own professed faith? 
or sacrificial obedience to starve the monster of temptation and sin that so easily ensnares us. See, the great lie is that a life lived giving in to these cravings is satisfying, but the opposite is the truth. The saying goes something like, the devil always asks for more than you're willing and you want to give, and he always gives less than he promised. Right? A life of joy is a life lived in pursuit of God's glory. And so that brings us to the third aspect of Paul's heart for praise. It's offered to him who is able. Worship is centered on the gospel and what the gospel accomplishes and worship is jealous for God's glory. Worship is jealous for God's glory. R.C. Sproul refers to anything that, that detracts or distracts from the people of God giving glory to God is a glory robber. <laughs> I love that. Sproul has a way with words. Glory robber. And he said, don't you be a glory robber, Christian. The preoccupation of the worshiper is he, not me. Praise is directed to him. What he's done for us is just a reference point. The preoccupation is with the exclusivity of God being worthy of praise. It reminds me of the opening questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What, you don't carry a catechism in your pocket everywhere you go? From my little tiny, and I'm desperately missing my glasses this morning. What is the chief end of man? Go ahead. You guys know this answer. More of you do than answer just now. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Brings us to this verse from the Psalms. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire but thee. My flesh and my heart in the King James faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What rule has God given to direct us on how we may glorify and enjoy him? Answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Referencing 1 John that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What rule? What's the definition? What's the handbook? What is to direct our bringing him glory? And receiving his greatest joy, the scriptures. See, in the end, friends, we have seen worship isn't about, we're going to do a little alliteration here, 
Worship isn't about feeling, but familiarity. It isn't about emotion, but education. It isn't dazzling lights, but rather the illumination of the heart and mind. Worship is not about good vibes, but a grasp of the truth. It is not the pulsating drum beat, but the precision of the message of Christ and him crucified. It is not operatic swells of the voice and instrument, but obedience born out of genuine faith. To God be the glory. The whole of Romans has been building to this point, friends. From the opening verses of dreadful condemnation because of man's sinful state to the offer of salvation by grace through faith to the unity of the saints in Christ unto a life of faithful and joyful obedience. It has all been building to this doxology. To God be the glory forevermore. Through Jesus Christ, amen. And that, you may say, friends, is the book of Romans. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you uh, that there is uh, a lifetime of learning before us. We can search your scriptures again and again and again and never exhaust them of their truth, of their, you know, worship in invoking truth. You've given to us your scriptures that we might know you, that we might know how to praise you. And we ask now that you would then receive our praise as it is offered to you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's stand.